Morning, One Church, what's up? Have you ever had to do a hard restart on one of your devices, on your phone? You ever had to reset something that you own, your phone, your computer, even maybe your router gets so jammed up, so twisted up that your only recourse was to restore it to its default setting. Default is like home base. It's the initial place where everything is supposed to work as smoothly as possible. Really, everything's supposed to work as if it was brand new when you restore it to default. However, sometimes default is not all that it is cracked up to be. In my house, the way our router is set up, my router is set up so that certain devices get priority over other devices. Translation, dad's iPad wins over son's Xbox in my house all day, every day. It's rigged like that, so I get the juice first, and then everyone else can kind of get the the leftovers when it comes to the default in my house. Uh, But sometimes we have so many devices trying to communicate to that router that everything gets slowed down and bogged down, and so typically we can just go do a reset. We just reset it, unplug it, whatever, and it works. But one time, even resetting it, wasn't enough. I actually had to wipe everything and restore it to its default setting. I had to start all the way over. That sounds good, right? Start all the way over, start fresh. The problem is when I did that, I lost my priority setting and I spent a long time frustrated. Why is my device so slow? Why is my stuff not working the way it's supposed to? Well, when I restored it to default, I lost everything that I had. Sometimes default can actually make things Worse. When you think about it, we all in this room have a default setting in life, a default temperament, a feeling, a mental state, a reaction that is our go-to, especially when things hit the fan in our lives. And y'all know what those things are that hit the fan in our lives, right? When stuff gets a little messy, we all have a default, a muscle memory to lean into when we get stressed out, when we get twisted up in our lives. And usually that default makes things worse. What about you? What's your default setting? Do you judge before understanding? Do you judge something before you understand it? Sure you do. Person cuts you off in traffic and you judge them, right? You call them uh, words I'm not going to say in a church service because I don't like lightning, right? So I'm just going to keep those to myself. But you know what I'm saying? You say these things and we just assume the absolute worst about a person who gets in our way, who cuts us off, who does something. We don't seek understanding first. We typically start from our place of judgment. Do you get angry easily? I don't mean angry like do you walk around punching people in the face on jump. That's a, that's a, that's a different sermon series, uh, hotheads. You know, that's a different sermon series we need to talk about. Right? I'm, do you get angry easily? Do you find your blood pressure rising just at the thought of another human being? Don't say amen too loud. That human being might be next to you, and I don't want you to get in trouble. Do you get angry easily? Do you treat your feelings as if they are facts? I feel a certain way about a certain someone, and I'm going to actually take those feelings and treat them as if they are actually true. You're entitled to your feelings, but you're not entitled to your own facts, right? Or do you choose suspicion over trust? When someone is supposed to do something and they don't do it the way you thought it should be done, or in the time you thought it should be done, or the way you thought it should be done, do you choose suspicion when there's a gap between someone's behavior and your expectations? What is your default? 
If you're like me, you probably answered yes to one or more of those questions. If you're not, if you didn't answer yes to one or more of those questions, I want to hang out with you because you are a holy person. I'm not that saved. I'm just telling you, like, I, I struggle with some of those issues, especially the last one, choosing suspicion over trust. Uh, as some of you know, I, I wear the hat as teaching pastor here, but, but I'm also a researcher and a professor, and, and, and my default is to be very analytical about everything to be very critical and analytical about everything. I support my family through critical thinking and analyzing and tearing things apart. In fact, the door to my mind and my heart has this sign on it. It says, in God we trust, all others bring data. That's kind of the way I operate my life. I have faith in Jesus. Everyone else, you better cite your sources, right? You better back up your research when you come hang around with me. Any analytical folks in the room, you can relate to what I'm saying. Any critical thinkers, any Enneagram type fives, my, my people, you know what I'm talking about? We, we, we deal with this. You understand what I'm talking about. However, in all honesty, you don't have to be a hyper-analytical person or a critical thinker like that uh, in order to, uh, to lean too far into skepticism. You don't have to be a critical person to be a skeptic. You don't have to be a critical thinker to be a suspicious person. In fact, there's a difference between critical thinking and just being critical. There's a difference between analyzing things and just being nosy and judgmental. And for many, their default is to always assume the worst first. When we were young, we had these big tanks of trust when we were all kids. Everyone in this room, when we were younger, we trusted everyone. But over time, that tank developed some cracks and some stress because life happens, right? People let you down. People stab you in the back, unfortunately. Maybe there's a tragedy. Maybe someone didn't live up to the expectation that you set. And, and what happens is we end up developing into these suspicious people who become suspicious of people and organizations and even God. And, and I think that Andy Stanley's saying that he's taught us for years really, really helps us with this. Andy says, whenever there's a gap between our expectations and someone else's behavior, we fill that gap with something. And that something is usually suspicion. I'll say it again. Whenever there's a gap between my expectations and someone else's behavior, we always fill that gap with something and more often than not, we fill that gap with suspicion. Think about it for a second. Your friend doesn't respond to your text message right away, so you assume they're ignoring you. Your boyfriend didn't double tap your Instagram post, so you think he's out looking at some other thirst trap. You know what I'm talking about? He's, he, he's on someone else's page because he didn't like your latest post. Your coworker sent your phone call straight to voicemail. By the way, we know when you send your call straight to voicemail. If it rings once and it's a voicemail, you looked at your phone and said, nope. But you, that happens to you, and so what do you assume? Oh, they're dodging me. Oh, I'm not that important. If you're a student, your, your instructor, your professor keeps giving you Cs, you just assume they're out to get you. They hate you. They don't like you. You have a friend who's late for everything. They're always late, so you just assume they're lazy and they're inconsiderate. You assume the worst first. Your default is suspicion. And what happens when suspicion becomes our default? Here's what happens to us. We become cynical. You ever met a cynical person? Always negative. Don't trust anything. Can never be anything good. Hey, someone bought our property. Yeah, but it's going to take a long time to get the money. Well, come on, man. Can't you celebrate? Right? Cynical people. Yeah, well, I don't know. 
Yeah, well, I hope it works out. Hey, I got a new job today. Yeah, how many new jobs is that, right? That's cynical person, salty person. When suspicion becomes our default, that's who we end up becoming, cynical. We end up selfish. We end up selfish people. Selfish people are really just inward-focused people. They only care about what's happening in their world and their lives, and so they turn everything towards themselves. And when suspicion becomes your default, you make everything about you. Oh, I sent you a text and you didn't respond back again. You must hate me. You must ignore me. Well, what about what was going on in their life, right? Maybe they were doing something else, like their job, instead of sitting around texting folks all day, trying to work, right? Most of the time, if I ignore a call or a text, it's because I'm legitimately doing something else. Just be, This is not even part of this sermon. I'm just going to say it, though. Just because someone has instant access to you through a phone doesn't mean they deserve instant access to you. Make sense? Just because you have my phone number doesn't mean I have to stop everything I'm doing to respond to you. And if you think people have to do that, you're selfish. I said it, right? It ain't about you. We end up cynical. We end up selfish. Here's what happens when, when suspicion becomes our default. We end up angry, just mad all the time at everything. And we go find more stuff to become mad about. We seek it out. And here's what I know. I'm, I haven't lived on this earth for, for that long, but what I've learned in my short time on this earth is that when you are cynical, selfish, and angry, do you know what you're eventually going to be? Alone. Because no one wants to be around a cynical, selfish, or angry person. Even other cynical, selfish, and angry people don't want to be around people like themselves. You'll end up all alone. Real question. Have you been there? Cynical? Selfish? Angry? Do you feel alone? Are you there now? What if I told you there was a way to develop a new default? If suspicion is your default, what if I told you there's actually a way you can develop a new default? What if I told you that everything in your life will change if you stop assuming the worst first and start believing the best? Last week, we learned because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of us get a brand new start. That, my friends, is the good news. Are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. Because he's alive, I get a new life. The Bible says everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything becomes brand new. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. Everything becomes brand new. We're new creations, brand new. So Jesus gives us a new default. So now what? So I said yes to Jesus. I took that step. I started following him. Now what? What does that mean for my real life? Well, one of the first steps we can take when we start following Jesus is to literally start doing the things that he did. It's to start living our lives the way that he did. And what's really cool when you look at the way Jesus lived his life, if I have a new life and I'm supposed to be following Jesus and modeling myself after him, one of the great examples he gave us is in this idea of love. Jesus was driven by Love. Love for God, love for others. It shaped everything that he did, and it's the roadmap for all of us to follow as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he had a lot to say about this 
in his letter to who I think are one of the most messed up group of Christians to ever walk planet Earth, this church in Corinth in present day Greece. He wrote them a series of letters, and in one of those letters, he was trying to teach them about the way they should function when they gather together, a way they should function when they're apart. And he started talking to them about some high level stuff, these gifts of God, these gifts that God gives the church so that we can live and be more and more like Jesus. And Paul's like on a role. He's legitimately like seminary style teaching this church after he corrects some of the false ideas and concepts that they had. And in the middle of his teaching on some very complicated stuff, he pauses and turns his attention to this great subject. It's like Paul has this epiphany. Before I continue, I have to talk about the most important thing. In fact, he calls it the most excellent way. All of this other stuff is important when it comes to following Jesus, these gifts, these talents, these abilities, this structure, this order, this theology. This is all very important stuff. But before I go on, let me show you the most excellent way. And Paul teaches us about our new default. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have what? I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, by the way, if you're here and you come from a charismatic or a Pentecostal background like I did, I'm glad the gifts of God are operating in you. But here's, a, here's something you need to understand. It doesn't matter if you can speak in tongues if you're mean in English. That's what Paul's saying. It doesn't matter if God's gifted you to speak in tongues if you're mean in English. You're just making noise if you can do all of that and you don't have love. Those are Paul's words, not mine. Take it up with him. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul is saying it doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how wise you are, how generous you are, how brave you are. Without love, you are what? Nothing. He systematically lists all of the things we typically think of when we think of someone who's close to Jesus. Did you notice that? This person is gifted. They can preach. They can teach. They, can, they know how to unpack things. They have knowledge. They have wisdom. They're a good listener. They have good advice. This person has so much faith. They pray. They believe God for big things. When they, Man, they're just so full of, of faith and this hope in what God can do. Man, this person is so generous. They give above and beyond their tithe and their offering. They're constantly going over the poor. Man, this person puts it all on the line for Jesus. They're willing to risk their neck. They go on missions trips. They're on police ride-alongs. They're walking through Lincoln homes in the middle of the night talking about Jesus. What a bold person. Paul said, you can do all of that. And if you don't have love, you've done nothing. You've gained nothing. It's like he's throwing down the ultimate trump card in this game we call following Jesus saying, none of those other cards matter without this most important card. Do tongues matter? Do prophecy matter? Do generosity matter? Does generosity matter? Do all of those things matter? Yes, they're important, but they're all secondary to this most important thing, 
love. Love, it's a powerful, powerful truth, love. My wife, she's the queen of fancy words. Her vocabulary is amazing. She's very well-read. She's been for a long time. And probably once a month, Jamie will use a word in general conversation that makes me feel about as intelligent as the batteries in this microphone. She'll say something, and I'll smile and nod, and as soon as she's done talking, I'll say, what in the world does that mean? Okay, I'm lying. You guys know me better than that. I don't smile and nod. I cut her off mid-sentence and say, what? What are you talking about? Say that again, because I don't like to feel dumb, right? I, I, that, that's just my hang-up. So wait, wait, stop talking. What does that word mean? You keep using that word. I don't know what that means. Love is one of those words that when you read it in the Scripture, I encourage you to st- Cut scripture off mid-sentence and say, what does that mean? It's so important. You cannot let love just be this casual thing we glance over when reading the scripture. Because it's so important, we better understand what it means. Make sense? It's a very powerful word. When When we come to that word in scripture, we must always ask us, what does that mean? And we have to ask a higher question, what does that mean for me? What does love mean? What does love mean for me? What does love require of me? Love is probably the most misused and abused word in in all of the English language. We love God and we love pizza. Same word. God and pizza. And we use the same word to talk about our feel. We love sleep. Any sleep lovers in the house? Some of y'all are asleep right now. That's why you didn't respond. We love sleep. We love our family. We love our pets. We love fried chicken. Some of y'all have the chicken. That's your pet. And you, you can love both in one, right? How can, how can one word, one emotion be applied to man and to beast and to inanimate object? And it's so crazy. Love. And, and the Bible actually doesn't help us a lot on the surface when it comes to love because the Greeks had a lot of different words for the word we translate love. One of the words they used was phileo, as in affectionate love or brotherly love. You guys are familiar with Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Love. Now, if you've been to Philadelphia, I've heard it's not that loving, but I don't know. Uh, I don't want to get beat up by a loving person from Philadelphia. But that's kind of that brotherly, affectionate love, as in, I love ice cream, right? I phileo ice cream, or I love you, man. Typically, we just mean brotherly love. There's another word in the scripture it's philoxenia, and it's translated hospitality, it's the love of strangers the love of the unknown, the love of strangers. So philoxenia, we see that in the Bible. The Greeks had another word for love, eros, which the word eros is not in the New Testament, but the definition of eros is all throughout the New Testament because that is sexual desire or sexual love. And then you have agape love. Have you heard of agape love? This is the active love God has for us and that we should have for each other. It's the highest form of love. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. That's kind of that highest form of love, and that's the love that Paul is talking about. And so Paul sets the stage for us there in 1 Corinthians by telling us, you can have all these spiritual gifts, you can do all this Jesus stuff, but if you have love, don't have love, you're nothing. If you don't have love, you gain nothing. But what I love about the writings in the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, is that he doesn't just say these high things without landing the plane and practically explaining to us. So remember I said we come to this idea of what is love. We should always ask, well, what does that mean? 
What do you mean by love? Paul beats us to it, and he starts to answer the question. He actually defines love for us. Isn't that cool? Here's what he says in verse 4. Here's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. So when I'm wrestling with love, how, what does love have to do with me living for Jesus? How do I live out love? What does it mean? The scripture actually tells us love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. Are you patient and kind with those who do not think like you do? With those who do not see the world the way you do? Maybe it's across political lines. Maybe it's around your your orientation. They don't see things the way I see things. Are you patient and are you kind? Are you understanding when people let you down? Are you constantly criticizing the lives and activities of others while constantly justifying your own behavior and attitudes? If you find yourself in that way, you might be able to say, I don't think I am being loving. What's, and when we find ourselves constantly being impatient and rude and, and envious and boastful and arrogant, when we find ourselves being that way, it's going to produce in us the type of cynicism that's going to hurt us and mess us up. So don't be selfish and cynical. Instead, choose love. It's a choice. Choose love. The Bible is cheating for me, and it's giving me the definition of what these things are. So if I want to be a more loving person, well, let me run my life through that measurement. Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I envious? Am I boasting? Am I proud? I don't want to be cynical and selfish. I want to choose love. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, Paul says, it. What is the it? Just making sure you are with me. Same context, right? It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Ouch. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Dishonoring to others, self-seeking, easily angered, keeps a record of wrongs. If that doesn't sound like Facebook on a Tuesday, I don't know what does, right? That sure does sound like social media culture to me. In fact, I'm convinced that our obsession with the likes of others has jacked up our lives more than we would ever know. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others' lives while secretly lusting after their likes, and we don't realize it's actually making us become unloving people because we're self-seeking, because we delight in truth. We find out some story of some guy got arrested for some, some crime he committed, and instead of rejoicing in justice, we actually rejoice in the suffering and in the pain of someone else. Someone makes a mistake, someone flubs, and we turn their life into a meme, and then forever, this person's going to be known as the one who had a misstep or a misspeak publicly. And we all join in on that when we hit like and we hit share. We don't realize it. We're dishonoring someone made in the image of God. I, look, I'm all about having a good joke. I'm not trying to rip the, the humor out of the room. I'm not trying to tell you you can't have things that you laugh at. But we have to live by this highest standard first and make sure we're not being dishonoring to other people. Think about how you speak. 
how you talk to others. Do you just speak without considering the impact that it's going to have on other people just because it's the truth? There's a lot of things that are true, but just because they're true doesn't mean you have to go around telling everybody. Just because it's true doesn't mean that you don't have to be loving in how you deliver the truth. And I know who I am. I know what it's like to be on the other side of me. Believe me, I am about as gentle as a billy club, right, with a nail in it. Like, I know when I'm talking to my friends and my colleagues, and I can definitely be a very blunt, harsh person in how I deliver the truth. So I just always want to make sure, even if it's after the fact, I can go back and say, hey, I'm sorry if I sounded like a jerk. I'm sorry if that came off a certain way, because I want them to know my heart. And just the willingness to say, hey, I'm sorry if this is going to sound rude. That's not my intention. Just that sentence tears down the wall and helps us all be aware that we're trying to honor each other. Think about how you speak. Love doesn't act like a jerk when it comes to telling the truth. That's what I'm saying. Love doesn't act like a jerk. Love has a long fuse. He said love is not easily angered. Love has a long fuse. Let me ask you, when it comes to your relationships, do you care about being right or do you care about having right relationships? Because if you care about being right and winning every argument all of the time, no one is going to want to really be around you. I would rather win a friend than win an argument. And I love to win arguments, by the way. That hurt my heart to say that out loud, but Jesus is working on me. I love to win arguments. But I would rather win a friend than win an argument. See, love doesn't keep score. Keeps no record of wrongs. I love one commentary. says, for love to keep a record of wrongs would violate the very nature of love. John, the disciple of Jesus, he said, God loved the world so much that he gave his son, his one and only son, that whoever would believe in his son wouldn't perish, but would have life eternal, would have life forever. God demonstrates his love for us, that while we're still sinners, Christ dies for us. That's what Paul said to the, to the Romans. So God demonstrates love through this great big sacrifice when he gives Christ. God demonstrates love by nailing our wrongs to Christ. And so when Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs, he's literally taking our minds back to the finished work of Jesus, saying if Jesus could forgive you, hot mess that you are, who are you to hold a grudge against what someone else has done for you? That only leads to isolation. It only leads to anger when we keep record of wrongs, when we keep that list of what people have done. And what I've discovered is that when we're having a stressed out time in our life, when things are going bad, the best way, the, the surefired way to make things worse in your life is to be angry and to be isolated when you make decisions, when you react. When we're angry and isolated, we tend to mess things up the most. And so don't be angry and alone. Instead, choose love. Here's what love does. Verse seven, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Everything changes when we stop assuming the worst about people, about organizations, about situations, and about God, and when we start believing the best about love. Is your life stressed out right now? Are you running at, you know, red line, Top RPMs, are you stressed out? The thought of people, the thought of your situations is just burning you out. Here's a powerful truth that I think will help you switch your default from suspicion to trust. And it's our bottom line today, our big idea. The greatest way to eliminate stress is to lovingly choose to believe the best. The greatest way to eliminate stress in your life 
is to lovingly choose to believe the best. If you're in a situation of relational stress, choose, lovingly choose to believe the best about that situation, about that person, about that organization. Don't jump to conclusions. Jump to love. Jump to trust. If you're in a season of relational stress, choose to believe that contrary to your feelings, everyone is not out to get you. Contrary to what your mind might be telling you, everyone is not out to get you. Choose to believe that your friend may just actually be busy doing their job or talking to someone else. That's why they ignored your call. That's why they didn't respond as quickly as you did. Choose to believe that your boss may be under a lot of external pressure. Maybe things aren't going well at their home. That's why they didn't smile at work. Choose to believe that life is not about you. It's a game changer. Life is not about you. It's not about me. Choose trust over suspicion. Choose love. Because love always trusts. How are you with all this stuff today? What is your default? Are you stressed out by people? Twisted up in cynicism and in self and anger and isolation? If so... I think it's probably because suspicion is your default setting. What do you think could happen in your life if you begin to believe the best about God and people when you're faced with a gap in information about a situation? You don't understand why things are happening, but what would happen to your faith if you chose to believe the best? What would happen in your marriage? What would happen with your parenting? your friendships. Today, I encourage you to choose a new default, trust. Lovingly trust. The greatest way to eliminate stress is to lovingly choose to believe the best. How do we live this out? It's a lot of stuff to think about in our heads. How do we choose trust instead of suspicion? Day-to-day basis. Here you go, and then I'm done. First thing you have to do is think. Think, why am I so bothered by this? That will change your life. You find yourself getting worked up. You find yourself getting stressed out about a person, a thought, an argument. Just stop and think, why am I so bothered by this? Person cuts you off in traffic. Why am I so bothered by this? Did they hit me? Did I die? Am I going to have to see that person ever again in my life? Just when you stop and pause and think, you'd be amazed how much it can help you. The second thing is you have to ask, and this is critical, ask, what else can this mean? I had an interaction with so-and-so, and man, they seem very rude. Instead of going to the place of suspicion and anger, wait a minute, what else could this mean? She didn't know I was going to share this story. It's fresh in my mind. I'm going to share a story about Kim. One Sunday morning, I was here setting up. She was here setting up, and I had ear, ear, earphones in my ears, and she couldn't see the earphones that I had in. And she was walking behind me saying, hey, Carlo. Good morning, Carlo. Hey. And I couldn't hear a word she said. And then finally I turned around and was like, oh, hey, I'm there. And she was like, oh, my goodness. I thought you were mad at me. I thought, what, what could I have done? What, what was going on? There was this moment where it looked like I was ignoring her. But wait a minute. When we, she stopped and asked, wait, what else could this mean? Because after the third time she realized, oh, he must obviously not hear me because he wouldn't be rude. 
he wouldn't do that to me. And it de-escalated. That seems like a silly thing, right? But that's how easy it is to get twisted up in life and to start becoming cynical when we choose the worst. What she chose to do was, wait a minute, what else can this mean? Well, maybe he just doesn't hear me. So ask yourself, what else can this mean? Third is to feel. I want to think, I want to ask, then I want to feel. So this week, when you're stressed out, when someone's situation's got you messed up, put yourself in someone else's space. This is called empathy. Instead of choosing suspicion and judgment and being critical, let me put myself in someone else's shoes. Put yourself in someone else. That's empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling sorry with someone. I'm going to enter into this together. Man, my friend was late for the meeting again. Yeah, but your friend's husband is deployed. She's got four kids. She's running, burning the candle at both ends. Relax. How would you feel in that situation? Not what would you do, how would you feel in that situation? And that completely helps us change from that suspicion to that trust. And then finally, we got to pray. And here's what we pray. God, remind me of your love towards me. When it all said and done, when I want to get angry, when I want to rage, when I want to jump to conclusions, and I want to think the worst about someone, God, remind me of your love towards me. God, show me your love in this moment. This week, when you're not sure how to interpret someone's behavior, do this. Believe the best. That's it. Give them the benefit of the doubt. How much does it cost you to give someone the benefit of the doubt? Fill every gap in information with the most generous explanation possible. Fill those gaps with trust, not suspicion. Do that with people and do that with God. You might be here cynical, man, you're skeptical about the things of God. I would just encourage you, hey, fill that gap with a little trust. Maybe you're not ready to take a step towards God today, but you know what? I'm going to trust enough to come back. I'm going to trust enough to have another conversation and watch what God will do in your relationships with everyone when you choose to do that. This week, try this line. I'm not sure what happened, but there must be a perfectly good explanation that will help you change your default from suspicion to trust. Lovingly choose God's way. The greatest way to eliminate stress is to lovingly choose to believe the best. Pray with me. God, thank you for your grace and power. Help us to trust you more to walk in this great big love of yours. I thank you that you loved us so much you sent your son to die for us. God, that we might live and live forever. If there's a person here who's not yet walking in that power and in that truth, God, I pray that you would help them to know you and to see you, to be like you, to be changed. That happens when we say, God, forgive us, help us. I know you meet us right where we're at. God, for everyone else in this room who might be struggling in their relationships, stressed out, frustrated, help us just to choose love, trust instead of suspicion. Help us to have the posture towards others, God, that you had towards us. To be quick to listen. To be slow to speak, God. Slow to become angry because we're going to trust We're going to choose love. 
And I thank you that when you do that, not only helps us, God, but then helps us reflect you to this world that needs to know that you are for them. Help us to be those people. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.